Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you Tim Panagos, who is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Microshare.io, and they are doing some really cool stuff that's very relevant with what's going on today. We're going to learn a lot more about it, but I, I want to just kick off saying, welcome, Tim. Thanks, Heidi, for having me. So obviously, COVID is the world we're living in right now. There's so many other different things, and we you know, trying to understand how technology can kick in to help us deal with this is going to be really, really important. Can you share a little bit about sort of what exactly are you guys doing and sort of how did you fall into that? Because I would imagine when you started your company, this was not necessarily the uh, clear mission because this is something that's come about fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah, this, this is true. You know, we're about, we're an eight-year-old startup. So we're, we're pushing the boundaries of what you'd call a startup still. But um, indeed, even in 2019, at the end of 2019, if I couldn't have told you that our number one seller would be contact tracing, it is a category that didn't exist in, in my mind until March. And then, you know, sitting here now in November of 2020, it's the primary market driver. And we find ourselves a market leader in a market that didn't exist more than nine months ago. So for sure, it's um, it's a bit of a surprise. It's also been a privilege to have been fairly well positioned leading up to it, to be able to react to something that is, I think, just an obvious societal need and, and a market need um, as an entrepreneur that's important too. You know, to answer your question, how did we get here? I mean, it certainly wasn't by dint of thought, right? It wasn't prescient. It was really um, a combination of luck and, and pragmatism that got us here. But we've been really building out a platform to really democratize some technologies in IoT, so Internet of Things for your listeners, collecting sensor data, typically wireless sensor data. And we've been focusing on what we generically call the built space, which is, you know, any place you work <laughs> is a good way to think about it, right? It could be office buildings or hospitals or airports, uh, factories, you know, there's places where you ultimately use the physical world to host collaboration of humans and machines to, you know, produce work very generically. So workplace, I guess, is another way to, to label that. And we've been kind of using telemetry, you know, wireless information, things like occupancy. So who's in a given space, air quality, asset tracking. So where are the things that roam in my space? And kind of building those out as individual use cases for people so that they could kind of combine that data and use, use their, their workplaces better. And then, you know, I really think 2020 was about to be a breakout year for us. We've done a lot of work in Europe. They're definitely ahead of the U.S. in terms of adoption of these kind of technologies, awareness and acceptance of different privacy issues that come along with it than the U.S. is. But yeah, here we come into March thinking we're going to do one thing. And the world just completely takes a 180 on us, on all of us, I suppose, right? It's not just us. And then we find, you know, all the things we were going to do business in have gone away. But what we found was, you know, this instrumenting of the built space and particularly technologies like asset tracking mm -hmm. 
we're a great place to jump off of to say, all right, humans are assets now. How do we uh, leverage the same kind of infrastructure to very quickly spin up this capability to help people uh, minimize the spread of the infection? For sure. And I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of fascinating what you're doing is you're, it, it seems like you're integrating a lot of, you know, our conversation a year ago, we were, a couple of years ago was, okay, we've got all this big data. What do we do with it? How do we actually, yeah. you know, one, yeah. how do we do it ethically? But how do we actually use that data in a constructive way and right. really access the right channels so that we can do something that has a positive benefit and it doesn't just become noise? Can you talk yeah. a little bit about, about that filtering process? Because a lot of that has to do with artificial intelligence. Is that correct? Yeah, it sure does. To your point, you know, if you go back, you know, five years ago, I don't think it was possible to do what we're trying to do. Nevertheless, we were trying, if you follow my timeline, we really started to see the confluence of a number of big trends and a lot of investments in these individual areas that are coming together. And so number one is cloud computing. Cloud computing, being able to leverage flexible computing infrastructure without having to buy and plug in physical machines, that has been rapidly evolving over the last five years and is in a, in a, a massively mature state compared to, to where it was. Internet of Things, you know, being able particularly connected wireless devices, right? So things you can deploy and stick on a wall and have information. It's been a massive investment in Internet of Things, particularly development of novel devices mm -hmm. and the you know core chips and the core technology that, that allows you to network them. And again, there was a boom and bust cycle around that too. There was a bit of a disillusionment or in the disillusionment phase, I think of that hype cycle, but billions of dollars spent in hardware development, network development, and then big data. You know, all of this buzz about analytics and big data and development, all these tools and best practices and again, that was a bit of a boom and bust feel to it, but a lot of money and attention went into this. And if you put all these three things together, all of a sudden, like, oh, now we can do something really powerful without spending ourselves a billion dollars to do all this unique development, right? It's really now an integration job, an engineering job of assembling these really cool components together um, to make them all work. And I think that confluence is what has allowed us to be really nimble in this present moment to take something that was you know, working in one context and shift it to another and be effective at that. It's really about the agility afforded by that massive background. We're standing on the backs of giants um, here um, with that. But to your point, really, yeah, when, it, when you really boil it down, it's always been a problem of garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. If you put bad data into a big old bucket, it doesn't matter how smart your tools are. Garbage generates garbage. And I think a lot of big data really struggled with that because quality of data really matters. And there's a lot of ambiguity in bad data. And so job number one for MicroShare was really to focus on the problem of getting high quality data out of these devices and ensuring that by the time it got to the big data realm for the analytics, we've done all the simple blocking tackling of changing the formats so they agree, understanding the provenance of the data, and, you know, removing a lot of the data engineering challenges from the analytic problem, because, you know, what you see, I think, is your average data scientist spends 90% of their time just doing data engineering, you know, data cleansing. Mm -hmm. And that's true in academia. You see it in true in, in, in commerce. I see it true in government. It's an expensive skill set, though. So if you could remove that impediment and just get them to the 
you know, the value creation portion of it, the analysis portion of it, that's really where you want to spend your data science time, not cleaning dirty data. So mm -hmm. we took that as job number one, right? We have to provide consistent, high provenance, trustworthy data. And then it, that just makes the analytics not a no-brainer, but it takes the background noise out of that problem. And I think, again, you know, without great IoT devices, without powerful computing in the cloud, and without the evolution of all these big data tools, that would have been a real challenge, right? To even know that that's the primary problem to focus on. Yeah. So we're sitting here, and I think in the perfect storm, of like, oh, it's obvious that this is the problem. Here are the tools to fix it. And uh, being able to bring that to market, I think, is a uniquely 2020 uh, ability. Well, I think it's a, neat, a unique opportunity as well for us to yeah. really understand the value of these tools that are being created and why that big data is important, and also how to go in and cherry pick the pieces that are critical and really have a clear strategy. It's like when you, you know, sort of throw everything up against the wall, that doesn't necessarily yeah. give you a solution, even if you have the solution That's somewhere right. in everything on the wall. Can you break it down a little bit just for our listeners who may not be as technical? What exactly, how does this work to do contact tracing? What, what kinds of tools are you using? Sure. What's the process there? Yeah, sure. So let's, um, let's give a, a rough definition of what contact tracing is yeah. just to, to level set there. Contact tracing, I'm sure everybody's heard about it by now, but maybe haven't seen it clearly defined, is really the process by which somebody, typically a human, will identify somebody who either has symptoms or has tested positive. In most cases now in November, it's tested positive one way or the other. And then we'll use a process to kind of go backwards in time to identify people that have been in risky contact with that person, typically over a period of you know two weeks, two weeks to a month. And uh, the normal process is that you know you go to the person who's tested positive and you ask them, who have you spent more than 15 minutes within six feet in the last in the last two weeks? You know, gee, I don't know about most people, but I don't remember that well uh, two days ago, let alone two weeks ago. So you can see like inherently the aging and the quality of that data falls off really abruptly, particularly for people who are, you know, back to work in some form or fashion, right? If you're at your home and you're isolated with your families, that, that's a pretty simple process. When you're, you know, a critical member of a manufacturing staff who's making vaccines, for instance, how many people are you rubbing up against and maybe don't even know mm -hmm. because somebody was standing behind you at a factory machine, you've got your, your ear protections on, you're focused on your task, somebody's standing behind you, breathing your own air. You, you may not have even been aware, let alone could you remember all this. So, so there's some weaknesses in that human process. But fundamentally, it's all about, you know, how do we target the intervention to hopefully limit the spread by going to those people who are most likely impacted and saying, hey, look, you, you should get tested. You should quarantine. How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. um, and direct the resources to those people. And that way we can allow the rest who are unlikely to have been affected, hopefully to carry on uh, normal activities and, and keep being productive. So that's what contact tracing is all about. So then you see the rise of technology really to fill in the gaps in the human memory, right? Um, to supplement that human process of backtracking with information. And there's been roughly kind of two paths technologically. One has been, let's use data from uh, mobile phones. And then another has been, let's use data from discrete wearables, which I know is a topic uh, near and dear to your heart. Mm. 
And, and of course, there's a blur between is a mobile phone a wearable or is it not? You know, I view it as a wearable, but I think humans have come to view mobile phones as extensions of their brains. I think it's transcended wearable at this stage. It's, mm-hmm. it's an implant. Um, and, and, and I think what we've seen in the popular press around contact tracing is the creepy backlash to the notion that somebody would be using their brain extension, aka their mobile phones, as a mechanism of measuring their social interactivity and then yielding that data to some big brother, whether that's a, a government or an employer or you know somebody other. I think that just inherently has been met with skepticism. You know, I, I think that's been the challenge, but you can get robust data out of a, out of cell phone that way. But then there's the wearables action, which is really where we have focused and said, well, you know, cell phones, Google and Apple, they've come up with some pretty good apps to do that data collection. So you do have that as an option. But what about wearables? The good news about a wearable, particularly like a wristband or an ID card uh, kind of wearable, is you know when you're wearing it. You could leave it in your glove box when you drive home. You could drop it in your office drawer and that you can physically know when the when the surveillance has ended. Mm-hmm. And that empowers people a little bit to be more trusting when they're in the work environment to use them. And it's also been great in places where you can't count on the staff to be able to have, you know, smartphones. It is just not a global given that everybody's got them, particularly when you go and look at manufacturing, you look at mining, you look at things like meat processing where they're in a clean room. They're not allowed to take personal effects like a cell phone in. So we have to go to something that is wearable in that case. And and ideally simple, low maintenance, inexpensive, easy to deploy and deploy at scale. So that's kind of where we've begun to, to lead in the contact tracing technology space. And is that more sort of the actual physical movement around or does it also, are you also looking at collecting some of the data? For example, like we were talking about earlier, New York Times has been writing a lot about this. And recently they they just yeah. actually, I think it was even today, they were talking about the bio button at Oakland University. And there was a lot of backlash yeah. there because people were saying, well, yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want my personal yeah. data being shared. There's obviously a value to that because then you can see the change if you, uh, what, what do you call it, anonymize it. And you right. can just do tracing that way. It's a way of understanding what's happening with the population, but the population yeah. has to opt in. And, yes. and so there's a lot of challenges there. Are you looking purely yeah. at movement or are you also looking at other sensor factors? Yeah. So we, in our contact tracing, really have limited it to contact and movement. And the reason I, I call those out is they are separable. So the minimum information that we need to collect is whether you and I were in proximity for a given duration. And it could be irrelevant of where that was. So we might have been in the break room. What's important for contact tracing is recognizing that you and I were were in contact. Mm -hmm. And some of our customers have deployed in that way. So they can't tell that we were outside on a smoke break in the men's room, in the break room, on the factory floor. But they can tell, uh, looking back in time, okay, Tim and Heidi spent time in proximity. So if Tim is uh, positive, we ought to contact and, and give Heidi some support. And that is kind of step number one, which you know does collect your social network, right? So it is very um, intimate mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's who do you spend time with? And it may be um, intentional, it may be unintentional, but um, being able to see that social network really is the minimum 
about using the contact tracing process. We also have some customers then who are layering on location to that. So not just that you and I have had a contact, but that we also have a relationship to a part of the space or a particular asset within that space. So let's just say the the water cooler or the the coffee machine or the coffee maker, it would be useful to know that because it can focus the cleaning interventions. It's like, oh, well, people are having a lot of contact in the cafeteria. Maybe we need to get more coffee machines or get more soda machines or another microwave and put it somewhere else. It allows people then to take space-oriented interventions to try to limit the need for people to congregate. And I think that's a real important step. The other aspect of that is air quality, which has been much clearer now than it was in the first half of the year that, you know, it's the air we breathe more than anything else is coming out. That's really what is the vector for this particular outbreak of COVID-19. So we also have air quality sensors deployed in these things in the same infrastructure. So if they know we're in the break room, they can also evaluate, is my HVAC performing well? Are we turning over that air? So that, yeah, okay, you were in close proximity in the break room, but it's a high quality air situation, probably lower risk than, you know, maybe we spent less time together in a locker room going into the meatpacking plant, which doesn't have air turnover. And, you know, we may not even actually been in contact in that case, right? So maybe I was there five minutes and left, you came in and then dwelled in that same space. A a traditional contact tracing wouldn't recognize that as a contact because you and I were never in proximity. But since we shared essentially the same space in a, an environment where the air wasn't turned over, that may be a higher risk than somebody I just had casual contact with outside. So when you start putting more dimensions of data together, you can get a higher resolution, get that focus on real risk scoring into the fore. But I, I'm a privacy advocate as well, right? So I believe in the power of data to drive decision-making. I think that's just where the 21st century has to go. At the same time, I'm very much a liberal, a classic liberal or libertarian in the sense that I don't think we ought to be giving up our personal rights in order to participate in this you know, important 21st century data ecosystem. So I, I can't see that becoming authoritarian dystopia of surveillance. So you know, we spent a lot of time and effort really kind of thinking through, all right, we can know a lot about you, how do we make that okay? How do we make that okay? Well, and I think there's also the the idea of, you know, how long do we need to do this? Does it have an expiration yeah. period? And maybe that's yeah. built into that there's a sort of a check-in. Okay, do you need to continue being, to have this functionality? And, yeah. you know, do you want to still be part of the tracing? And And I think as long as we can build in all of those back doors to be sort of saying, okay, this is essential right now. Just like, you know, when we're going into lockdown, okay, things are changing. We need to be much more careful about actually contact tracing and seeing where where we are and who we're interacting with and what kind of spaces we've been in. But hopefully, you know, six months from now, we won't. But there may be some functionality that's still pretty critical or can yeah. be converted into something that's a different functionality. So there's Absolutely. there's sort of, you know, how do you look at it? What What's your sort of long-term perspective of post-COVID? How do you see this functionality being yeah. an effective tool? Yeah, so a lot of great points to unpack there, Heidi. You know, the ability to walk it back, the ability to be incremental, I think is really important because we need to get people comfortable and we need to actually look for abuse. 
and deal with that incrementally, right? So I'm not a fan of like to put everything in place and just hope for the best. I don't think that's realistic. It's a little too scary. Do I think there's a lot of bad actors out there? No, I also don't believe that. I think most of the participants in these ecosystems, absent of uh, some very clear examples of bad actors, which I think we all know, absent of those, I think most people are trying to do the right thing. Big Brother is trying to be brotherly and not creepy, but you know, we're still sorting out the societal norms, right? So figuring that out, right? So limiting in time, limiting in scope, these are ways of limiting the risk. And so one of the one of the factors that I think that's important that we've kind of focused on is rather than sell to a, a government, which might have a large jurisdiction, a big, broad area, we've tried to focus on commercial. So even a large employer might cover a lot of people in a given geography. It's pretty common for, you know, a little town to have a primary employer, right? One big factory, one big mine that covers a lot, but it's still less than, you know, the nation or the state having that, that scope. And so we hope by kind of making it possible for the employer to offer this, there's a halo effect to the community as well, right? Every employee has family and friends they're looking out for. And that's really important. And the fact that the major employer in that area is going to play that role is a potential for abuse, possibly, but it's less than if, you know, your nation was collecting this information, uh, perhaps. So reducing in scope is important. Reducing in time, I think, is that other dimension, right? So limited use. One of the good things about the wearable is I do know every minute of the day whether I'm wearing this bracelet or not. And, you know, telling me that you turned it off on my phone, well, I got to kind of trust you because how many of us really know what's going on on our iPhones or our, our Android phones or, or what have you? So maybe it's turned off and maybe it's not. I sure know that when I drop that bracelet in the drawer that I'm, it's, it's off me now, right? I'm not, not being traced. Um, we actually use this operationally. If you wrap those things in tinfoil, it, it stops. <laughs> it's, it's a Faraday cage. And it, you know, it, so you it might send it with like the little packets like you get for the sensors for your car, for the, uh, the toll. So it's like, Absolutely. okay, put it in this when you're not. Funny anecdote. What we have found is that the tinfoil sheets used by hairdressers uh -huh. when they're coloring hair are the perfect size for these uh, Bluetooth uh, bristlets that um, Oh, very that interesting. So that's been one of our, our tricks is, uh, you know, here's these pre-sliced pre tinfoil uh, sheets. You can just wrap these up and, you know, keep them in your drawer. And, and, and Be careful. There's going to be a run on them, just like the toilet paper. I know, paper. seriously. <laughs> How many of us have access to a hair supply? So, uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's, that's been one of the funny learnings, right? I think one, one of the things that's been cool about being early into this is we are getting to learn real practical lessons about how you deploy these to scale. Some of them are technological. A lot of them are, are human, right? Um, and I know that's kind of key to the conversations you have with your audience, you know, learning about what makes this more palatable because in the end, we really are, I believe, 100% trying to protect the community, trying to empower and protect the employees. And in my mind, you know, the needle path that we need to take in the 21st century is not insisting that only the power of data is held by the powerful, that we insist that that is, continues to be democratized pushed down into people's hands in a form that empowers them to make their own better decisions. So my perspective of contact tracing and air quality and all of this tracing, how do we handle it over time? Well, yeah, we could just shut it all off and go about our business. Hopefully a couple of years from now, vaccines, and we can just forget about it. I'd love to believe that was true, but let's say that's not true or it's, you know, we're worried about the next pandemic because now I think we're all aware it can happen. Mm -hmm. This isn't the first time 
It won't be the last. Okay, so maybe we learn to live with some of this technology in our lives, but how do we not make it creepy? How do we give the power back to the people who are being measured so that, you know, I think one of the creepiest things about the Big Brother is, is behavior modification, right? Who's trying to manipulate my behavior? Mm-hmm. And you see that in the election scandals around social media, very much in focus. How are we changing people's behaviors from on high? Well, that's super creepy, right? What I'd rather do is say, look, let me give you the same powerful tools that the biggest, most uh, accomplished data scientists have. Let me put that into your hands, employee of the factory, so that you can change your own behaviors. You can say, well, okay, if I have a choice of shifts, this is the most safe shift. If I have a choice of lunch buddies, this is the buddy that is least likely to introduce me to more risk. And I think if you give humans that power, now you have to dumb it down. I would dumb it down is the wrong word. You have to distill it. You have to take the raw data and turn it into insights in a way that makes it actionable. So there's all that, right? Because we all also can't withstand the cognitive load of filtering, you know, millions of lines of JSON, right? But Well, and part of that is just understanding the interface and how to yeah. create an interface and sort of not necessarily gamify, but make it something that it's easy yeah. to understand and easy to interact with and useful. Yeah. I mean, where is that value? Is it worth the time That's to right. figure out the tool? Because like we saw with, you know, in all of my research, the biggest problem with any wearable is that, you know, people use it for maximum six weeks and then it's abandoned. It's like, well, it's yeah. usefulness expires. But if as long as you continue to be useful, people will take the time to remember to charge it and to put it back. But I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. most people who have ever adopted a wearable have a, a wearable graveyard somewhere in their house that's just a right. stack of old phones yeah. and old things. And the thing is, if it continues to be useful, they'll not only continue to use it, but they'll also, you know, update it and upgrade it for whatever is the current issue that's you know, that resides yeah. in their environment, whether it's, yeah. you know, making sure that their family is safe or, or, you know, keeping track of their loved ones or keeping track of their team and making yeah. sure that everybody is okay. I yeah. think most people don't have, it's not necessarily they don't have the capacity to learn the technology. It's more the bandwidth and the interest for yeah. it to be of value for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I told you, I read your thesis, and, and so I know that it's near and dear to your heart, and, and it mirrors a lot of the learning that I had in my thesis as well, where I, I looked at these kind of technologies for aging in place, um, specifically. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be a thesis all about all these new technological interventions that needed to be invented. And uh, that's not at all what I found, is that the technology was there. It was really this problem of how do you make the tools appealing and useful so people welcome them into their lives and keep them there. And, um, you know, the cell phone certainly has done that maybe too well, right? But, uh, you know, there's some lessons to be learned there. But I think you're, you're spot on is if I can do a useful job for the person, then they will, on one hand, they'll afford a little bit more cost in terms of loss of privacy, right? And a little bit more uh, involvement in their lives. Like I got to keep things charged perhaps. And I think that the future for us as a society beyond the immediate moment with COVID-19 is I think that most places will start to change their attitudes towards their built environments and how they support human collaboration. Because I think everybody's now well aware that the corporate campus, the single large factory is a big business risk. It's a big societal risk. It's a big personal risk. And why keep doing that? Mm -hmm. I think those that 
with, that have the ability to will begin to change their work environments to be less risky and more supportive. And I think what we're going to find is people work from home more, that there will be more smaller regional offices, not large kind of core central. I think that's going to be the journey that people, employers and the people who are employed, that's the journey we're all going to be on for the next 10 years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because whether COVID remains present in our lives or not, the specter of it will. And I think people, there's enough real economic losses that people aren't going to be able to ignore this. And I also think people who, employers, who want to attract the best talent, increasingly the best talent's going to start asking questions like, well, who had the best track record for keeping people from getting sick last time? Um, who really cares about wellness? Who's taken positive steps here for my entire work-life balance, including disease prevention, I think that'll be, start to become a selling point and a, an attractor or detractor for employees to employers. And so I think all of this is going to evolve over the next 10 years. And by the way, I think COVID just accelerated what was already there in trends. Right? Absolutely. People already working at home more. Yeah. I, I gave up the commute 10 years ago and I can't imagine, I can't believe how much of my life I spent sitting in my car on a bridge in my case, looking at Cambridge, uh, you know, at a tantalizing few blocks away, but just breathing fumes and, and, and fuming myself, right? So, like, who doesn't want to do away with that? It's just an ecological nightmare. It's a human nightmare. It's just a destroyer, right? Well, okay, so how do we use these tools and technologies to create a more supportive work environment that also can reduce the risk to the employees, their families, and friends? And I think at the end of the day, Data is the way to do that, particularly with large organizations. You know, I'm a small business still. We have under 40 employees and I still know all their names and I know what they're worried about. And I know where they're working mostly on a daily basis. But if I'm 40,000 employees, if I'm 400,000 employees, I've got not just one location, but 20, but 50. You can't manage that the way humans naturally manage by walking around, right? It's well beyond human scope. You need data to drive that. You need insights into action so that the people who are responsible for all the dimensions of improving this can make real good decisions based on actual data. By the way, I think that the employees have a very strong incentive to participate because it it can make their lives better. So they don't want it done to them. They want to be at least an equal participant, if not a disequal, you know, a superior participant in that process. Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, it's a quality of life issue and it's also a quality of work. And I mean, as we have seen a lot in research that, it, you know, when you can improve without the productivity is increased and improved and I mean, it has all these other spillover effects. And so yeah. it's no longer looking at, you know, just the soft skills piece of it. This is actually a critical factor. If we take care of our employees and we take care of our community and make them feel safe and supported they will, you know, return that in spades for the organization. Yeah. So I yeah. think where you're headed is absolutely in that direction to fit that sweet spot of helping actually make that happen. So just on a, on a practical way, if somebody wants to test this out or to, you know, to implement something like this within their organization, how far have you come in sort of what kind of tools are available for, you know, what scale of organizations are you working with or can individuals use the tool? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's a great question. There, we are not alone in having detected this as a market opportunity. So uh, to say it up front, there are every day new announcements about new contact tracing opportunities. So there's a real broad variety of tools that are out there in the market that I think fit 
every imaginable niche from size to geography to to scale. And where we have always been kind of focused is on the larger side organizations because really my pitch to people is this isn't, you don't buy MicroShare just for contact tracing. We will help you with that tactically because it's what gets you back to work. But then putting in everything else, occupancy to know how spaces are being used, air quality to know, you know, what your efficiency is there, you know, all the different things that we do telematically in a building, our shtick is putting all of that together. And I think that's a leave behind for this 10-year journey of improving and changing the workplace driven mm-hmm. by insight. If you're an individual, that's too big a scale for you. But you know, there are apps on your phone, there are increasingly smaller and wearable companies that are participating. Where I would like to go, and this is not today, and I wish I had a much clearer answer for you today. Where I want to go is a ecosystem play. And it's really kind of what MicroShare was founded to be. You know, you might say, well, what's what's the name MicroShare got to do with IoT? What's it got to do with data? It doesn't say any of that in there. It's sharing small <laughs> is what is what our names mean. What we really have focused on is that individual rights for every piece of data we collect can be respected. And if they can be respected, then we want to enter a world where information actually is easier to share, not harder to share, not locked down, mm-hmm. not anonymized, but opened up. And I think what that will lead to is, you know, yeah, we're starting with large employers today, but as you start seeing ecosystems where large employers begin to overlap, right? Well, here's a factory that makes the parts to the factory that makes the thing. And maybe they're in the same geography. Well, there's overlap there. You know, you got people and parts and going between them. Do we need one large system or actually could these smaller systems be aggregated to make inferences across that, you know, little ecosystem? And as you keep like moving those bubbles outwards, if it was done well so that people could see it, but visibility is a radical and fundamental, right? Mm-hmm. So transparency is important. If it's transparent to the people and they're comfortable with what's happening, the ability to share that, I think, will drive the participation down. I would see that one day you could go to a vending machine or Amazon and buy one of our wearables and say, I'm plugging it in because everybody who works at the factory is using it. I don't work at the factory, but I want to be part of this too. Let me volunteer to be part of that ecosystem and have your data shared along with the data that's being collected about the individuals who work at the factory. I think that's how it will evolve. I really won't. That's what I've always envisioned is that we'd get to that level. So even though we deal with, you know, really the only the largest employers today, I see that rapidly driving down, continuing to follow that democratized curve. And if you stitch enough small bubbles together, you end up with a regional solution without requiring a, a giant big brother to be over top of it. Well, Maybe for that's sure. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, you know, just the families alone of the yeah. people that work for the factory. It's like, well, they're obviously part of the contact experience. And so, I mean, I think about even just in, in our household, we have, you know, two adults and two young adults and our kids both work in restaurants. And so there's oh, yeah. this, uh, you know, everything they're being exposed to, we're being exposed to, even that's though right, yeah. we work at home and rarely leave we're getting their exposure. So that's, I think, you know, that's obviously we're in this extreme case right now with COVID-19, but, you know, whether that morphs to something else or whether we just want to try to understand the bigger picture of things and become, you know, understanding of the entire system, I think that there's there's going to be some really interesting opportunities for people to opt in to understanding how to be safe and how to to keep each other safe. So 
I think you used the right word, system, man. You know, that's really what it is. We all live in these interlocked systems. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we suffer through the digital backlash in so many ways, right? The uh, the downside of the digital impact on our lives. But I, I'd like to think that this this podcast is about the potential upside. Um, maybe maybe we try to focus on that. We know we try to focus yeah. on the positive. But, but, yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> we have to be watchful as we do it because the downsides are real. So you have to take them head on. But I but I think in the end, making the system tangible. Yeah. Well, it's so big. And like you said, you know, the families interlock and um, we interact and that's very natural and human and, 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 and positive. How do we let that continue? Because we don't want to be an individualized society. You know, it's not good for mental health or, you know, productivity or anything else. So we can't change our monkey natures overnight. And we don't want to. What yeah. we do want is to make the system more tangible without overloading the individuals yeah. so they can make better decisions about their relationship to it. I don't know how to do that without good data and better analytics. Well, and I think, I mean, to that point, it's, it, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's like that mental overload and, and, and how, yeah. you know, I don't remember yesterday, all the people that I interacted with or, well, yeah. yesterday, I know, because I never left the house, but I <laughs> couldn't track, you know, I don't know who my kids interacted <laughs> well, with before they came to me and to actually be able to do that passively and have that information so that you can make calculated risk decisions. Yeah based on the data that, you know, that's delivered to you in a clear, concise way. So you're not, it's not mentally taxing. I think that's really right. important because we've already sure. got information overload. That's right. So more, I, more data is not necessarily more better, right? Well, it it's just, you know, clarity. when is a good time to go to that market because it is yeah. lower capacity, you know, that kind so, just simple information. I don't know if this will resonate to you, but one of my co-founders started analogizing what we're trying to do to Waze, the, mm -hmm. the app that people have used for traffic on their phones, probably. It's a tool that synthesizes a tremendous amount of different kinds of information together. It takes all of the feedback from all of the people using Waze, tracking their progress in their cars, whether they know it or not. It also takes user feedback. Hey, there's an accident here. There's a police here doing a speed enforcement or whatever on their road hazard. You know, and it synthesizes all that into a simple to use tool that just says, hey, what's the fastest way to get from where I am to where I'm going? And should I wait 10 minutes to do that? Analogously, I think we could put information about our social network, information about the health and availability of our workplaces into a device, uh, an app, an analytics model like Waze that said, look, I know you want to be collaborating with Tim on a piece of work that you're doing sometime this week. And I know you have latitude of which day to pick to go in, which day should you go in, which route should you take to work and which conference room should you guys meet in? Yeah. All of that you could think of as a ways experience, right? I know what Absolutely. I'm trying to do, where I'm going, synthesize it for me, just make it easy, right? It, oh, it reserved the, the conference room I want on Wednesday at 3 p.m. and gave me a parking space at, it could be a concierge kind of experience that, lubricates that experience while factoring all these nitty gritty things in yep. like health and, you know, optimal. I love you know, it. Commute, all that stuff, right? Why not? I love it. Well, it's the future. And I think it's, yeah. you know, the, that's where the opportunity lies. And obviously we need to be looking at the ethics of how the data is used and how that, right. and, and all of that. But I think that there's, you know, it's all part of a learning process and we're, you know, yeah. we've just been pushed on fast forward and, yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm glad there's, you know, there's teams like like yours that have good ethics that are that are behind some of the technologies that are coming out. So 
just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And we will make sure that our guests get all of the uh, links so they can find you and learn more about what you guys are doing. I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you, Tim. It's been a great pleasure. I'm really happy to speak to you and your audience. Well, it's such a treat. And I really appreciate everything that you're doing and keep it up and uh, keep us posted. We'll make sure we uh, retweet when there's new exciting things happening in your space. And thank you, Digital Selfers, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, please make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you haven't already, please feel free to give us a rating and review. We always appreciate it. and Let us know so we can give you a little love back. Thanks again for joining us today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.